Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Jesus is enough. Greetings, friends. Thanks for joining us on this uh, stream of our sermon series, Hidden Grace, Lessons on the Life of Joseph. We're in week two. Uh, this week's title is Hidden Brokenness, and we're back in the same passage because we're, we're looking at it from different angles because there's a lot here that we want to see and we don't want to miss, like hidden treasure. We want to go slow and we want to find that treasure. So today we're talking about hidden brokenness. Um, I'm going to be reading out of Genesis 37 in verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father, to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And now we go down to verses 23 through 34. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, his robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carrying it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. So they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. 
Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. As we got into this series last week, I mentioned that I saw a post by a friend on Facebook who said, if God's really in charge of things, then he must be incompetent. You know, look at all the bad stuff that's happened to me. This passage and this story of Joseph is probably one of the very best places in the whole Bible to address that thought. Because what you have here is not a series of principles or theological assertions. You have this story, this amazing story of God's grace, this amazing story of God's sovereignty, of God's providence in Joseph's Joseph's life, bringing him through all these trials to this place of healing and hope and influence and power in Egypt. And I want you to let this story draw you in. I want you to see yourself in the story. I want you to see Jesus in this story. And here's what we're looking at these first three weeks in this series. What we see in this part of the story is hidden brokenness, hidden plans, and hidden grace. Now, last week we looked at God's hidden plans in this story, and you can go back and listen to that message. But briefly, what we see in this story is that God isn't even mentioned in this part of the story. It almost seems like God is completely ignoring Joseph. But what we learn in this story, as we watch it play out, is that God's silence is not absence. God is working as much in his silence in Joseph's story as he does when he delivers and everything comes to light in the end of the story. Because if God doesn't allow and arrange these circumstances to bring Joseph on this journey where he would end up with the king's prisoners and eventually end up in the palace second in command to the king of Egypt, if God doesn't arrange all these circumstances, everybody dies. Everybody in the land dies. Everybody in Egypt dies because there's a coming famine that God will use Joseph as a deliverer to save the known world in that part of the world at that time. Joseph saves his family and he also preserves the messianic seed in his brother Judah, an ancestor of Jesus Christ. So if none of this happens to Joseph, everybody dies, which means God must have been working in all of it. God was working out his sovereign plans in all of it. Now today we're gonna look at hidden brokenness, hidden brokenness. We've been using the picture of Mount St. Helens. You've seen a picture of it, we showed it last week. We're gonna look at it again this week. This picture of this, this gorgeous, beautiful mountain. You know, nothing looks more permanent and stable than a mountain in all its splendor and all its glory. I remember when I was in Tanzania, I, I served, uh, the base that I served in was in uh, Tengeru, Tengeru uh, in Tanzania, and, and it was at the, the base of uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, some 19,500 feet, and you just look up at this mountain, there's snow on the top of it, 100 degrees on the ground, there's snow up there, just huge majestic mountain. Nothing looks more stable and permanent and strong than a mountain. But underneath Mount St. Helens, something was brewing that was about to blow the top right off. And it was the same with this family. This family of Jacob, large and prosperous, was about to have something blow the top right off this family. So let's dive a little deeper now into Jacob's brokenness, and then we're going to look a little deeper at Joseph's brokenness. Some background on Jacob, also called Israel in this story, Joseph's father. Jacob grew up desperately lacking the affirmation of his own father, Isaac. Isaac uh, loved his son Esau uh, more than he loved Jacob. 
And so part of Jacob's story was he deceived his father Isaac to receive the firstborn birthright, which was a very special thing that happened between fathers and sons in Hebrew culture. So literally, Jacob dressed up, faked becoming his brother Esau, dressed up like Esau to steal his brother's firstborn blessing. And at first, his blind father was suspicious that it wasn't Esau, but then as you read the story, his face and his voice changed and he blessed him. And that must have been very painful for Jacob to be in that situation where he was finally experiencing the love and affection he wanted, but only because his father thought it was his other brother. Incredible pain and brokenness that came from the favoritism that uh, Isaac brought into his family by loving Esau more than uh, Jacob. It poisoned his whole family. And after Jacob deceives his father and steals the birthright, Esau, his brother, is so mad that he wants to kill his brother Jacob. Matter of fact, the Bible says, it almost implies that he comforted himself by fantasizing about how he might kill his brother. So Jacob had to flee to his uncle Laban, and he never sees his mother again. It's the last time he sees his mother. Now Jacob in a foreign land has to start his life all over again. And his inner neediness drove him to fill that void. And the way that he tried to repair himself was by utterly fixing his heart on Rachel, who would one day become his wife. His heart thought, Rachel will complete me. And Rachel ended up giving him his two youngest sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph in this story. But Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. So what happened? Jacob replaced Rachel by making Joseph his new emotional center. Genesis 37, 23 says that Jacob gave him a richly ornamented robe, also known as the coat of many colors. And the key word there is rich. Jacob lavished money on Joseph. And the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Joseph had become Jacob's idol, the, the God of his life. You know, I think the modern term for that might be codependency. Joseph had become the central source of joy and love in Jacob's life. Here's what author, teacher Tim Keller says about idolatry in the human heart. The only alternative to the gospel, he says, is idolatry. Nobody is an unbeliever. There's no such thing as an irreligious person or a secular person. You either believe in the true God or you are a slave to an idol. We all have a bent toward treating things as gods that are not gods. The reason for anything you ever do wrong, the reason for any problem you're having, the reason for any flaw or any brokenness in your life is always idolatry. The only alternative to worshiping the true God and purity is idolatry. Idolatry is under every sin. So let's define this idea of what an idol is because I think sometimes when we hear the word idol, we think of you know, a carving of wood and stone. But it goes far deeper than that. And the Bible uh, teaches this a lot. It was one of the main themes, as a matter of fact, of the apostles' teaching in the New Testament is how our hearts respond to these, these idols. So what is an idol? Number one, it's something you seek ultimate satisfaction in outside of God. Number two, it's something you make more important than God. And number three, it's something you believe completes you outside of God. After all, wasn't this the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden? Satan came and said, here, eat of the fruit of the tree. 
you know, you'll be satisfied. What was the temptation, really? It was a temptation to be satisfied outside of God. And the entire human race has been tempted by that idea ever since. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on idolatry, said this, an idol is anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is anything that is central to me. An idol is anything that seems to me essentially, absolutely necessary. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. An idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, my attention, my energy, and my money to it effortlessly. I think a simple definition, it's just something you make more important than God. It's, it's something you place too high a value in, and in doing so, we place too low a value on God. And we see this everywhere. Anything can become an idol. Even good things can turn into idolatrous things in our lives if we place too high a value on them. I mean, I see this, you know, a lot of you know that I'm a wrestling coach. I see this in the wrestling community. Wrestling and sports are a religion for a lot of people. You know, whether you're a volleyball player or a a football player, you know, I I see it in the wrestling community. I was in a a wrestling room of another club a few years back, and they had this this, uh, picture, this poster on the wall that said, wrestling is my religion. It is my identity. It is my life. I brought my kids over. I said, come here, look at this. I said, I love wrestling, but wrestling makes a terrible God. I said, we are children of God first and everything else second. Actually, maybe everything else last because our identity in Christ is that important to see it as primary in our lives and everything else orbits around that. And, and so that idea that wrestling is my religion, that can happen to anything. It can happen with money. It can happen with career. It can happen with achievement. It can happen with a certain relationship in your life. It can happen uh, with anything. Matter of fact, I see this in my, my kids, and we, we teach a lot about idols in our home, and I, I see the, the instinct to worship idols uh, from a very young age. And even though idols change as they grow, um, the, the instinct and, and, and draw toward idols is there at a very young age. And, and we, we deal with it. And, and let me give you an example. When my kids were younger, um, you know, Reese and, or Jack and Audrey <clears throat> um, had a, a, an argument over whether they were going to watch uh, My Little Pony, it was Audrey, or The Kratz, which was Jack. You know, they're arguing, I, w- I want to watch My Little Pony. No, I want to watch The Kratz. And they're arguing about it. And, and all of a sudden, it, you know, the whole, it, everything goes ballistic. It spirals downward. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a shootout at the OK Corral. So we have to step in and <clears throat> what's going on? Well, I want to watch My Little Pony and, and I want to watch The Kratz. And, and you know, they're, they're just lashing out at their siblings. And so I'm able to say, well, let me ask you a question. This conversation I, I remember having with Audrey. Um, who, who is God? Who's your father? Jesus, yeah. He's, he died on the cross for us. He loves us. And we're complete in his love. So did My Little Ponies, did, did, did the ponies die on the cross for you? No, then why are we giving so much? Why are we giving so much of ourselves to My Little Ponies, Jack? Why are you giving so much of yourselves to the Kratz? I don't know. Are we worshiping My Little Ponies? Are we worshiping the Kratz? Look at each other. 
yes. It's okay. Come here. Let's pray a prayer of repentance. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me for worshiping my little ponies. Worshiping my little ponies. For worshiping the crats. For worshiping the crats. Good. Jesus, we thank you that we're complete in your love. You see what we're doing? We're, we're bringing them back to the only one who truly completes us, the only one who truly satisfies us. So don't think, well, I don't worship idols. Keller was saying, nobody is irreligious. We are born worshipers, and we will give ourselves to something. Jacob's idolatry of Rachel and then his son, the favoritism. I mean, the scripture is very clear. He, he loved uh, Joseph more than the other brothers. It poisoned his whole family. Now, does that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what his father, Isaac, did to him. He loved Esau more than him. And so we see these sins playing out in these families and this idolatry, this favoritism playing out <clears throat> in these families and breaking these families. That was Jacob's brokenness. Let's look at Joseph's brokenness. Here's the symptoms of the poison in Joseph's life. Joseph, around 17 years old at this time, <clears throat> says he brought their father a bad report about his brothers. Now, the word bad report in Hebrew always means a, an evil or a false report. So, like, he's lying. He's, this kid is a liar, and he's backstabbing his brothers to his father. Now, let's talk about his dreams. He had these dreams, and he gloated and boasted to his brothers, and <clears throat> it says that his brothers hated him even more. It's almost like you see this, this hatred, like, accelerating and growing in this story. The more he boasts and gloats about these dreams. He has another dream. What does he do? Same thing. He's completely insensitive to the feelings of other people. He's a narcissist. He's become spoiled, insensitive, arrogant, and a cruel person to his brothers. Jacob himself, as with as much love and favoritism as he had for Joseph, Jacob himself had to rebuke Joseph. Joseph's way of telling these dreams must have been incredibly arrogant. The Hebrew narratives don't give unnecessary details. And in verses 4, <clears throat> 5, and 8, it tells us that he, that his brothers hated him. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so there's lava that's going to blow the top off of these lives. And we see this, this terrible, wicked thing happen where they, they betrayed their brother. <clears throat> so underneath the surface of this family, like Mount St. Helens, there's, there's lava, there's hidden brokenness and pain and favoritism and sin. And I believe we can learn two things from this part of Joseph's story. Number one, <clears throat> the Bible consistently shows us the radical contrast between traditional religion and the gospel, the gospel of good news, the gospel of God's grace. What's traditional religion? Well, here it is right here. Three things. A, here's the rules for right living. B, here are the heroes who could do it. See, imitate the heroes and God will bless you. That's traditional religion. But the, the profound thing about this story is if you're going to look at it that way, there's nobody in this story wearing a cape. There's no good guy. There's just brokenness. There's hate. There's bitterness. There's pride everywhere. What does this mean? What are we supposed to make of these stories? Where's the lesson? See, I think sometimes we unwittingly look at the Bible sort of like a Christian Aesop's fables, a story of moral you know, examples and moral heroes that we sort of get the moral of the story. But the Bible is not Aesop's fables with the main goal of trying to get you to live a good life. 
if that was the goal, you could only draw a few conclusions out of this story, not positively, but negatively, but you know, by negation. The two, the two I guess, morals of the story, if, if that's how we should approach the Bible, are, well, number one, here's how not to raise children. Number two, how to avoid sibling rivalries. But do you really think that that's what this story is about? Do you really think the author wrote down this story to teach us how to raise our children better by negation? <clears throat> I want to re- repeat a quote I said last week as we're diving deep into this idea of the hidden brokenness. Tim Keller said, the Bible's purpose is not just to show us how to live good lives. The Bible's purpose is to show how God's grace breaks into your life against your will and saves you from the sin and brokenness otherwise you would never be able to overcome. That's what you see on every page of the Bible. Religion says, and I'm talking about dead religion, it says, obey and you'll be accepted. The gospel says, you're accepted, therefore you'll obey. So I don't do good works to become a child of God. I do good works because I am a child of God. It's an effect of my relationship with God, our good works, not the cause of my relationship with God. And so what we see in this story is, again, a contrast between traditional religion and and the gospel of grace as it shows us what, what God in his mercy and love does for us, not what we do for him. And the second thing I think we see in this story is, is this, and I think a lot of us will relate to this point. I think that the family is a classroom of sin and grace. This family certainly was. You know your parents' character flaws? We all do, right? We know, we know what was wrong with our parents. Well, where are those flaws right now? They're in you and they're in me. Now, <clears throat> I am not someone that believes in the idea of generational curses. In other words, you're under this generational curse your whole life and, and, you know, until you can sort of crack the code and break out of it. Jesus became a curse for us, and he broke our generational curses, and God is our father. So I, I don't believe in generational curses in that sense, but I do believe in generational sins. You may be tempted the same way as your father and mother were tempted. So in this story, we see favoritism playing out with Isaac and then favoritism playing out with uh, Jacob. It reminded me of that, that famous old song, Cats in the Cradle. Maybe you, you've heard the song. Here's just a, some of the lyrics of that song. He says, my child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away, and he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, Daddy, I want to be just like you. I want to be just like you. And then the, the chorus of the song says, and the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon, when are you coming home, dad? I don't know when, answers the dad, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. I'm gonna drop down to the last verse when the tables get turned. I've long since retired, my son's moved away. I called him up just the other day and I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, dad, but I can't find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle, the kids have the flu, but it's sure been nice talking to you, Dad. It's sure been nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me, my boy was just like me, and the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, son? I don't know when, 
but we'll get together then, Dad. We're going to have a good time then. Really sad song. And here we see the son repeating the mistakes and the neglect of his father. And I think that's what we see in, in Joseph's family, in Jacob's family. The story of Joseph's family teaches us what this song teaches, that you are not just a product of your choices, but you are the product of your relationships. What has been done to you is just as important as what's been done by you. You got into your problems in part because of bad relationships, and you're only going to get out of them. The only way you're going to get out of them is through relationships. And this, this is precisely why modern people will not like this point. We like to solve everything through self-help by just improving our choices. I mean, if you go to any, any major bookstore, what is the section that has the most, you know, it's the largest section? Self-helps, you know, the Oprah, the Oprah books. Find yourself, right? That's the world we live in. If you're kind of swiping on social media, TikTok or you know, Twitter, a lot of it is about self-help and just improving your choices and then you'll fix your life. But self-help books are not the answer. Identify your problems and fix them. As a matter of fact, you can't even see your flaws without relationships. You need relationships to heal you, but we can't simply start with horizontal ones. We have to begin with vertical ones. We have to begin with the most important family relationship there is, your relationship with God the Father. To see sin and grace through his eyes. Remember, we're talking about how the family is a classroom of sin and grace. Enter the classroom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enter the classroom of God the Father and let him show you sin and grace and see it through his eyes. That though we're all like Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers, fallen in our sin, he showed amazing grace by the giving of his son Jesus to us before we could ever do a thing to earn it. You didn't get into your troubles through your choices, but through relationships, and you're not gonna get out through your choices but through relationships. And a healthy relationship with God is the most powerful resource there is to meet the deepest human need. Human need. Jesus said in John 17, three, this is eternal life. He's gonna explain to us what the essence of eternal life is. He said, to know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He reduced eternal life to the relational connection we have with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. So, That fixes us, that heals us because his love heals us. We find our identity in him and we're complete in him. And then that explains every other relationship and helps us relate to other people without making them our emotional center, without making them our idol like Jacob did for Joseph. A healthy relationship with God is the most powerful powerful resource there, there is for us. That's precisely what Jesus provided through the cross, access to God. We were separated by sin but God came to us when we couldn't come to him. And so the gospel uses family language all the time. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's why here at Redeeming Hope, uh, you know, having a, a family culture is a big cultural distinctive for us that's important to us. Not because we, came, we didn't come up with that idea. It wasn't like, hey, this is cool. This is a cool way to look at it. It's not just a cool way to look at it. It is the reality of the household of faith. It's a reality of God's people. We are a family starting with our relationship with God. And when we see his love, we are healed. We are completed. Our idols fall because we are no longer defined or completed by anything in this world, 
but by the love of God alone. Jesus came into our brokenness so that we could be made whole. And this series shows us that he is the truer and better Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, sold for silver into slavery, risen from prison to rule and deliver his people, went into the pit to take us out of it. He became broken so we could be healed. And aren't you glad? Just a few thoughts in applying this message today. Three thoughts. Number one, I want you to consider your relationship with God. Where is it in the context of your life? Is it central? Is it primary? Preeminent? Or is it on the fringe? Yeah, I'm in the Jesus, but you know, I, I see him on Sunday. You know, it's, it's, part, it's the fringe of my life. Is your relationship with God transactional or relational? Do you know what I mean by that? Your relationship with God is based on what he gives you and what you give to him. Like, you know, you love him more if he kind of gives you better, a better life and better circumstances, or you ignore him when things are going well, and you only come to him when, you know, things are hard and you need him. That's a very transactional relationship. Or uh, he loves me because of what I do for him. So I'm going to do these good things and I'm going to kind of put him in my debt. That is a transactional relationship. That's a legalistic relationship. Or is your, is your interaction with God relational? Do you see him as a father who loves you, who wouldn't disown you and, you know, is, is generous and, and kind and, 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 and wants fellowship with you? Is your relationship with God based on Christ's work or your performance? It's the most important relationship that you have. I was talking to my kids the other day about the two most important decisions you'll make in your life. You know what they are? Number one, what are you going to do with Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? Will you trust in Jesus? And number two, who you're going to marry? <laughs> and we talked about how important those, those relationships are in our lives. Now, if, if you've been in a, a family situation or a marriage that's, that's been broken and has known some pain, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is healing, and there is wholeness, and there is restoration. And, and I believe that. But these relationships are very important, starting with your relationship with God. Okay, application number two. Ask for the Holy Spirit to heal you. Are you broken? Is your family broken? Is your marriage struggling? You have hidden lava. Are you Mount St. Helens? You got hidden lava you know, in your life? And here's how God heals us. Here's how the Holy Spirit heals us when we call out to him. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He shows us that we belong. He shows us that we are loved. And it is the love of the Father that heals us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to fix your hidden brokenness, to mend you and our families. And finally, number three, application. I just want to encourage you to turn from your idols. How do we do that? Do we suppress them? Well, we demote them, but how do we demote our idols? We demote our idols by placing the correct value on them and not desiring them in a way that makes them too important in our lives. How do we do that? Here's how. By remembering and centering our lives on that one great overarching desire for God. And when we stir up our desire for God 
and we stir it up by beholding Christ in his word and in the gospel and among his people. We just constantly remind ourselves of God's love and who he is and who Jesus is. When we stir up those affections and stir up that love for God, that one great overarching desire puts in place every other desire in our lives. Every other you know, inordinate, you know, out of whack desire in our lives gets put in its proper place in our lives where things that we might treat as gods that might be good get demoted and put in their right place in our lives. My, relation, my romantic relationship, my, my relationship with my family or my children, my relationship to my career, my relationship to money. I don't worship money. I worship with money. I don't worship wrestling or sport. I worship with sport. I don't worship my family or my children. We create a family environment where we are a place that is worshiping God. We center, we, we've, we orbit our family around the center, which is God. And everything works better, by the way. Everything works way better when it's in the right place in your life. And it's not you know, inordinate. It's not uh, in, a, in an idolatrous place in your life. And so I want to encourage you to flee from your idols. Repent of your idols. Turn from your idols. And let your one overarching desire for God put in place all other desires in your life. Man, I'm just loving this series. I'm loving this story. It's taking me in again. It's, it's, it's shaping me. What, what I'm, I'm seeing here is encouraging me. I hope it's encouraging you. Let it shape us and, and allow you to see Jesus and, and who he is. He, he is our Joseph. And, and let it shape your understanding of your trials and your brokenness and see that God is good. God is working because God is in control. God bless you. Jesus is enough. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.